to mark your calendars on. Number one, this Saturday, 8.30 to noon, gentlemen, uh, I will be leading us in a seminar on discipleship, and we will be looking at some unique vantage points that Scripture provides regarding discipleship. And so if you uh, have ever wondered how to disciple and also wanted to be discipled, uh, this is for you. And if you're a Christian, this is for you. Come out. There's food. It'll be a great time. Uh, also, Jeff mentioned that next Sunday evening, 5 to 7 p.m., is our next Covenant member meeting. And uh, those were always joyous times of welcoming new members and saying farewell to old members who move on from us. Um, this coming one will be unique in that on behalf of the elders, I intend to address biblically the vaccine mandates that many of you are facing and whose jobs are in jeopardy here in town. Uh, we want to help you think biblically about that and try to navigate a very murky and gray area. Also, that you have the rise, the unavoidable awareness of critical theory, critical race theory, and various species of critical theories that's applied to different disciplines. And that is also something that we will be addressing this coming Covenant member seminar uh, to help you think biblically uh, about that false teaching. So, so uh, come on out for that. So if you would join me in John chapter 11 as we continue our series in the Gospel of John. So today in the Lord's providence is a unique day. So we call today the Lord's Day. Sunday is the Lord's Day because this is the day that the Lord rose from the grave and we commemorate it every single week. So in that sense, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is, is Easter. But today is also Reformation Day. So just over 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, and those sparks from that nail sparked the Protestant Reformation and a recovery of the gospel and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Praise God for that. We, we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It was a little bit difficult to sing because it was written in 1529. So we are singing a song written by Martin Luther in continuity with centuries of the church. So it's Reformation Day. It's the Lord's Day in God's providence. And it's also a day that we're preaching about a guy raising from the grave and coming out of a tomb in cloths. It's Halloween. <laughs> if you didn't know. So in the Lord's providence, there's uh, multiple things taking place together this morning. So, so with that... We are in John chapter 11. This is part two from last week. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I'm going to read verses 21 to 27 to set the text before us. But this morning we're looking at the larger text of verses 17 through 45. So if you would look at verse 21 with me. I'm going to read 21 to 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I and the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Oh, Father, we hear our sister Martha making this confession of your son that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity coming into the world. And Lord, we hear of your son declaring that he is the resurrection and the life. And Lord, we need to believe this. We want to believe this. We believe this. Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, all manner of circumstances that our hearts are in right now with suffering and sorrow, confusion, blessing and joy and more, all that we are facing, you, Jesus, are the shepherd of our hearts. And so, Lord, would you grant new hearts where they're needed? And would you console and strengthen hearts where it's necessary? But Lord, do your work among us as you see fit by your spirit with your word. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Death. Many people fear the thoughts of the process of dying, and many people fear death itself. Many people fear and are anxious of the process of dying for a loved one, and many fear and are anxious for the death of a loved one. Some of us have lived through that in the past. Some of us perhaps are living through that now. And some of us will live through that in the future. There is fear about pain in dying. There is fear in the loneliness of dying. Even for materialists who think that all that we see in this world is all there is, Even for materialists, there's fear of the idea of non-existence after death. The sheer brutal coldness of non-existence. And for most, there is the fear of the unknown in dying. What really will happen to me after after I die? Questions and answers. Answers to questions have profound implications for how we live our lives now. How you answer those questions, what will happen to you after you die, informs what you do now with your life. Is this all there is and is it survival of the fittest? Or is there more beyond the grave than this life has to offer? And so you live this life in light of what is to come next. There's the quest among scientists, biohackers, and technologists to not just prolong life, but to attain immortality. Every heart has eternity inside it. Mine does and yours does. And this is evidence, evidenced rather, in people of all places, of all times, everywhere. And so the question that you need to address, you can't sideline it, you can't bury it in the sand. The question you need to ask and answer is what's going to happen to you After you die. 
because you're going to die. And when you answer the question, what's going to happen to you after you die, my question to you in that response is, how do you know that's true? Because in this life, you only get one shot at deciding, as it were, what happens after your life. Not that you determine what happens. But what you believe, because what you believe dictates what happens in eternity. And this is not a flippant matter because you only get, as I said, one chance in this right or wrong. In the biblical worldview. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand what Jesus and his Bible teaches us regarding the afterlife. Because we do think there's life afterwards. In the biblical worldview, death is a thief and villain. Death is not native or natural to our creation. God created us to live forever, and so we shall. But in one of two places, hell or heaven on earth for all eternity. You see, when sin came into the world through Adam, God had warned Adam and Eve that the penalty of sin and disobedience and defiance to God would be death. And they, Adam and Eve, chose death. And so Adam plummeted the human race into mischief and mayhem, sorrow and suffering, ultimately death. God made us to live forever. Now we would grow old. Now we would grow sick. And now we would die. And therefore death has spread to all people. Worse than that, death is not merely a cessation of existence as materialists think. There is far more life beyond the grave than before the grave. Death is not cessation of existence. Death is separation of the material and immaterial, body and soul, for a time. But ultimately, death is conscious, physical, eternal wrath in the lake of fire. That is the worst news in all human existence. That is the bad news of the Bible and why therefore Jesus comes to give us the good news of salvation. Scripture calls death our inescapable enemy who yawns to swallow us whole down into the bowels of the earth. So what humanity needs more than anything is a Savior. A Savior who can not only take away our guilt against God, Make us right with God. But we need a savior who can also reverse the curse that was incurred by Adam and Eve. And a savior who can undo death forever. He has come and his name is Jesus. So what we have in the gospel episode this morning is nothing less than Jesus proclaiming that he is the undoer of death and the champion of our souls to bring us out of death itself, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you're taking notes, our sermon comes to us in three parts this morning. Here they are. Number one, Jesus has compassion for us in our lament. We'll look at verses 17 to 37 especially paying attention to the responses of those who are suffering. After that, we'll move a little bit tighter, focused on our text in part number or part two, Jesus is the resurrection and life, and we will look again at verses 28 to 37. And then we'll end our time, Jesus is the conqueror of death, and that's verses 33 to 45. Well, if you would, look with me at 
verse 17, our first point this morning, Jesus has compassion for us in our lament. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. In verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to Jesus. Now, verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him, but... Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? As we take this first pass through our text, seeing that Jesus has compassion for us and our lament, if we look at verse 20, we see Martha coming out to Jesus And she makes a true statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Martha, or rather Mary, when she comes in verse 32, she says the exact same thing. Whenever we read in scripture a doubling or repetition of a statement, it's as if God is saying, pay attention, take note. Even the crowds, for different reasons in verse 37, also give the question. They muse to the air, as it were. God, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The answer, of course, is is yes. But if you look at the sisters, Martha and Mary, neither of these sisters know 
what we know. They, they're not privy to the previous episode to last Sunday when we heard Jesus speak to the disciples. Look, at, look up at verse 4 in your Bibles. When Jesus heard it, Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Or look down to verse 14. Also what the sisters have not heard. Then Jesus told them, his disciples, plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Martha and Mary do not know any of this. All they know is that they sent a message to Jesus and Jesus did not come through as they had asked. Jesus did not answer their request as they had requested. Jesus did not come through for them and they had seen Jesus so many times before come through for other people who were hurting, come through for other people who were in pain and sorrow. So many times they had seen Jesus rescue and save sinners, people he didn't know and hear his friends. Jesus did not come through. How do you think this felt? What do you think this did to this their internal monologue as they begin to think through their knowledge of who God is and who they'd heard uh, uh, Jesus say he was and the things that Jesus taught and the miracles he performed? What do they think and how did this feel? Perhaps, perhaps you do know how this feels. Perhaps you still have outstanding requests that have been sent to the Lord and they have not been answered the way that you asked. We looked at this in depth last week. But as we saw last week, we are prone as God's children to misinterpret God, especially when it comes to pain and suffering. We only ever interpret it negatively, that God doesn't hear, that God doesn't see, that God doesn't listen, that God doesn't care. But the text in John 11 is clear Our triune God hears, he sees, he listens, he cares, all because he loves. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is proof that he does so. Now, if you look at verse 20, Martha's words, same as Mary's in 37, they are actually a respectful rebuke of Jesus. It's a respectful rebuke of Jesus. So, so same with Mary's in verse 37. They, they know Christ's love. They're friends with Jesus. There's no indication that they doubt Jesus, even in their sorrow and pain. They know Jesus heals, but they don't understand why he didn't heal Lazarus, their brother, Jesus' friend. But take note of what we just saw in verse 20 and verse 37. Both sisters offered a respectful rebuke of God in the flesh. Is this even permissible? 
Because what they're saying is accurate. Now, we saw last week Jesus can heal across time and space. It's irrelevant. But in their minds, they are respectfully rebuking him, saying, it's your fault that our brother's in the grave because you weren't here and you didn't come when we asked and you had plenty of time to get here. Is this permissible? Can you talk to God this way? The short answer, yes. Yes, you can. How so? From Genesis to Revelation, especially the Psalms, now all Scripture is inspired, and there's an inspired category of Scripture we call lament. There's lament Psalms. There's lamentation all through the Bible, and these two sisters here are lamenting. Lamentation is when God's people cry out to God in pain and perplexity because of what they're seeing and what they're experiencing from their perspective does not match up with who God is and what God's word says. So whether it's the unrighteous appearing to be blessed, but the righteous suffering, or more. This is why this is important for us to hear. Our church, we have a strong love and a biblical appreciation for the sovereignty of God and his providential hand over all things. And we should because it's biblical and it's what the Bible teaches. Praise God for his sovereignty and his providential hand over all things. Thinking of even Joseph saying to his villainous brothers, it was not you who sent me here to Egypt, but God to save many people alive. We love and rejoice in that truth, but there is a way that we and all who share this understanding of scripture can go wrong with this biblical truth when it comes to Pain and suffering. God is good. God is sovereign. God is providential. Life is hard, at times unbearable and perplexing. He oversees all things. How do you fit those together? And what ends up happening is we think because God is sovereign, our task as his children is simply to grin and bear it because that's God's sovereign plan. But the Bible teaches us otherwise. God teaches lament. God welcomes lament. God put lament into the Bible, especially the Psalms, so that we can pray the Psalms back to God. Why, O Lord? Why? Yes, yes, yes. Hebrews 11 is a hall of faith. But take another look this afternoon at the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith and count up which of those saints, tally up those saints who suffered and did not also express perplexity and confusion to God. In other words, Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Faith and in many ways it's also the Hall of Lament. 
in various ways and in various circumstances, those to whom were a cloud of witnesses of us as we followed Jesus cried out to God and questioned God. Therefore, the hall of faith in many ways, in my opinion, is also a hall of lament. So not only did we take their cues of faith, but we can also take their cues of lament with faith. We need to hear this because our good view of God's goodness and sovereignty should not undermine or negate what the Bible teaches regarding lamentation. It is, lamentation is, part of the life of faith. As you look again at the sisters, both are honest and forthright with Jesus, God's son. Martha has a brief exchange with Jesus, but Mary, she just falls before him in a mix of worship and brokenness. What Martha says, Mary shows when she crumples. Their words and actions are words and actions of lament, in keeping with all the broken saints of Scripture. I heard a a definition of lament just the other day that was very helpful to define what lamentation is. It's a prayer of pain that ends in trust. Lamentation is a prayer of pain that ends in trust. It doesn't stay in the perplexity. But but lamentation involves preaching and rehearsing the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves to calibrate our understanding of pain and perplexity. There is pain, there is perplexity, and in the middle of it all is the cross of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb who suffered in our place. Lamentation is a prayer of pain that ends in trust. It summarizes well that definition, the raw, tear-soaked, why gods of the Psalms in the midst of real pain, real sorrow, real suffering with a really good God who is really sovereign and has a providential hand over all things. Not everything, not everything makes sense to us. But it still ends in trust. Biblical lament ends in trust, not necessarily greater understanding. Not necessarily greater understanding, but greater faith. Do you remember Job? All the chapters of that long book, when Job cries out to God for explanation, did God ever explain his bitter providences in Job's life? Never. No. All God gave Job was a greater revelation of the godness of God. And that was sufficient for Job to stand up from his dust and ashes and follow his Savior. Not more understanding, more God. So not everything in God's plan or ways makes sense to us. Indeed, they can hurt us. But listen, with an eternal perspective, affliction at the hands of God makes sense in a very similar way and how a doctor hurts to heal. The gospel reminds us who God the Son is. The notion of suffering in this world, sometimes people use as an accusation against God, even a so-called proof against the existence of God, but it's a, not a, it's a, it's a false proof because you can't call anything evil unless God exists because you have to have a moral standard. But what the gospel reminds us is who God is in the person of his son. 
Jesus, who entered into our humanity, is the chief sufferer of all the universe, evidenced by his cross, where he bore our sins and sicknesses and sorrows, as Isaiah 53 prophesies. Jesus wept because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and so you can weep too. It was Jesus from the cross who first cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out in pain, in prayer. But how does he end on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus had pain and perplexity. Jesus ended in trust. If God himself is the chief sufferer and chief lamenter of the universe, friends who love God's sovereignty cry out to God in your pain and have it end in trust as you rehearse the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in your place. Martha and Mary lamented honestly and trustingly to Jesus. And in this way, they model for us how to lament as children of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Next, number two, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What we're going to see here is an echo of what God did with Job. Job cried out to God, And so therefore, God gave Job, as I said, a greater revelation of God. The sisters have spoken with Jesus face to face and cried out to him. And now Jesus is going to give a greater revelation of Jesus, not just to the sisters, but to you. The question that was asked at the beginning was, where are you going to go when you die? What is going to happen to you when you die? And how do you know? Listen to what Jesus teaches. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And note this, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That question is over every one of our hearts and heads right now. Do you believe this revelation of Jesus by Jesus? She said to him, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We'll stop there. Jesus' word to Martha is his word to us in your suffering and in your perplexity as God responded to Job. In verse 24, Martha knows her Bible. She knows abstractly what the scriptures teach. A resurrection is coming, a reunion of body and soul, material and immaterial, are coming back together for a resurrection on the last day. She knows both the righteous and the unrighteous will be raised at the end of days. 
But Jesus teaches something entirely profound. And what he teaches about himself is his answer to her pain and perplexity. Look again at verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe? Three times. Believe, believe, believe in that passage. Jesus is not merely teaching that people will rise again for the final judgment. They will. Jesus is not merely teaching that he will rise again. He will. The end of this gospel. No, Jesus is teaching something even more profound, if you can say that, regarding even his own resurrection. Jesus is teaching that he, in himself, is resurrection. And this cosmic reality is bound up in the twin truth that he says in verse 25, he is the life. Now, we've heard a number of times already in these first, uh, these first 10 chapters of John that Jesus is the life. As a lamp is lightless without being plugged into its source of power, so too all that lives owes its living to the author and source of life, Jesus Christ. You need to press into that. You need to feel the gravity of that biblical truth of what Jesus is teaching. Your heart is beating. Your lungs are working. You're taking in air and breathing it out. You exist because Jesus wills it. There is no blind chance or luck in Christianity. You are not a random mutation of genes. You are not anything other than what Jesus has made you to be. And you exist because he wills it. Right now, in this moment. All that lives owes its living to Jesus. From the, from the clownfish in a coral reef. And the Great Barrier Reef, to you sitting here, and everything in between, exists. Because in this moment, God has willed it from eternity, and Jesus sustains you in this very moment. You have no control over your life. You will die at the appointed time, as Hannah sings back in the beginning of Samuel. The Lord kills and makes alive. So in this fifth of the seven I am statements in John, Jesus indicates there is no life that lives. There is nothing that lives that does not find its source of life in him. That's who Jesus is as he looks Martha in the eyes. In that moment, as, as her pulse quickens, because in her sorrow and pain she's talking to Jesus, Jesus is the one who's keeping that pulse and heartbeat going. And that's what he's doing for you right now. But the Gospel of John reveals that Jesus is not only the author of life, he is the sustainer of life. And so you exist in this moment for no other reason than Christ wills it. Jesus is the life. 
but more than that here in this verse, 25, is that Jesus is also the resurrection. Now, it would be faithful to Scripture to say that Jesus is the resurrector. He is the one who on that last day will call forth um, the dead. That's true. Meaning he'll bring us all to that moment of the great white throne judgment, Matthew 25. That's true. But what's curious here, what Jesus says, is he doesn't say, I am the one who resurrects people. He says, I am the resurrection. In the same way, Jesus is not merely the life giver, but the source and power of life. Jesus is not merely the one who resurrects. He is resurrection. Jesus is life to a perfect degree, such that even out of death, Christ will bring life. You will die. Jesus will raise you from the grave. And when he raises you, you will appear at the great white throne judgment. And there, at that judgment, one decision is made about who are goats and sheep. Who enters into the glories of heaven or the horrors of hell. Whether or not you repented from your sins and entrusted your life to Jesus Christ as the Savior of your souls. There is no other metric or measurement by which God will judge and save than Christ. And the focus of Jesus' words to Martha, though, is not the doom of resurrection to judgment. Jesus' words to Martha about who he is in himself in this abstract notion that he is life and resurrection in himself. Jesus' words are consolation and encouragement. Even the order of Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say I'm the life and the resurrection. Even the order of his words points to, hints at, a quality of, of life and a quantity of life for believers post-resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. Not the life and the resurrection, though it's true. And whoever believes in me, verse 25, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Anyone, anyone, anyone who renounces life apart from Christ, and turns to life in Christ, everyone will be gifted with the promise of glorious resurrection into glory. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't out God's unfathomable grace in Christ. So if you don't know what will happen to you on that moment when your eyes close with your last breath and then they reopen to see the face of Christ on his throne, if you don't know, here is the Savior who has come to save. But that decision is made this side of the grave, not post-mortem, as it were. There's, this is not reincarnation. That's false. There is no second opportunity after death. That's nonsense. It's this moment, right now. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day of salvation 
And what did Martha confess? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is coming into the world. Martha's consolation is she hears Jesus' words in her pain and perplexity, in her lament. Her consolation was not that Lazarus would raise, though that was encouraging, no doubt. She knew he would. Martha's consolation in her grief in the face of death was that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the one to whom we look. And it's because he is the Messiah. He is the promised Christ. He is the son of the living God in the flesh, son of David. And this is where your consolation must reside as well. In no one and nothing else other than in Jesus himself. Jesus alone is your hope, dear Christian. Jesus alone is your life. Jesus is our resurrection. Jesus is our glory. How is this so? Well, Puritan John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Even the title itself, he does many things in that excellent book. You should read it. But in the death of Christ, we have the death of death. The most unlooked for military victory ever fought on this earth was in Jesus dying. In our place was the death sentence for death itself and the evil devil and all of his minion demons. Jesus' death for our sins, his resurrection from the grave for our justification, defanged death and declawed the devil so that death and the devil no longer rule over the children of God. But if you have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, death and the devil are your masters and will forever be until you turn to the true master, Jesus Christ, the good one. This, this promise that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, life now, resurrection life now, the promise of eternal life future, resurrection future, reminds me, as we close out this point, of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. 1563. What is your only comfort in life and death? I wonder how you would answer that. Let's listen to how our grandfathers answered that for us in 1563. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me 
of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our only comfort in life and death. Last, point number three, Jesus is the conqueror of death. Jesus speaks these things to Martha. Mary will hear them later, but now he's going to show us these things. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, note these words, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. The raising of Lazarus is not a fairy tale. It's not religious myth. This is real, true, historical event. This is another sign that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ breaking his eternal kingdom into the present. But notice first, Jesus' emotions. Jesus is a warrior king, and this is a battle scene that we are engaging in. But Jesus doesn't have a physical sword. He has a sword coming from his mouth, his word. Notice first Jesus' emotions in verses 33. Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus weeps. And then again in verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. What was Jesus feeling? You you see his emotions, right? If you have any notion that he's this unfeeling, robotic, phantom deity, that's false. Jesus feels. And when it says here that he's deeply troubled twice and Uh, uh, deeply moved rather and greatly troubled what did those words mean in the original the word deeply moved is the word to roar it's to storm with anger 
the same word deeply troubled is to use of the snorting of agitated horses before battle. It's to possess indignation. In other words, our text, sadly, in many English translations, soften the feel and flow and feeling of this text because Jesus is full of wrath. He is both grieved as he weeps and enraged. Why? Like a warrior king, over his captured and harassed bride, Jesus has come to rescue her by slaying the evil dragon. He is a serpent crusher. He's the dragon slayer. Jesus surveyed the scene. He saw the footprints and effects of the fall, of sin, of death, of unbelief everywhere. So he sees the fallenness of the people and their unbelief, their rebellion. He, he sees the effects of sin and Satan and death and more. A people, he sees, a people trampled and sorry and wrecked by the fall. He sees the tyranny of the devil and with righteous rage, he unsheaths the sword of his word because Jesus is going to do something about it. He's going to reach down deep into death with the word of his power. He's going to undo death and draw a man out four days dead and decomposed from the grave. And guess what he did? He did it. And Lazarus got up. Lazarus got out. Lazarus obeyed the voice of Jesus. And you will too when you are called forth from the grave. Make no mistake about it. And for those of us who love Jesus, praise God. Hallelujah. Do you know why Lazarus got up? Jesus told him to. That's why. And that same voice will cause us to be reunited and reconstituted in our bodies. That cemetery on campus will unload all its dead to the great throne of Jesus. That's what's going to happen. Should the Lord tarry. What happened to Lazarus served to prove the claims of Jesus. And, and he's going to do it again. He's just going to get himself up at the end of this book. And when the people saw it, it led to the life-altering belief of those who witnessed it. Although some see this happen and decide to kill Lazarus again and Jesus for it. But that's, that's next time. It just shows how cold unbelief is they too these people believed jesus was the promised messiah the son of god who has come to save sinners do you do you you see death is as i said at the beginning the ultimate villain and the final thief whom first corinthians 15 the book of Revelation, Jesus will throw into the lake of fire for punishment. Jesus is the destroyer of death and the generous king who gifts us with all the riches of eternal glory because he is the resurrection and the life. I said at the beginning, you're going to die. And what is going to happen to you? You have to answer that question and how do you know it's true? You only get one chance to get the answer right or wrong. The answer, my dear friends, is here in this book, especially chapter 11. Jesus' question to Martha at the end of verse 26 is the same question he asks of each 
and every single one of you, young and old, long time here, short time here, visiting or not, believer or unbeliever, Jesus says to you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life or not? And friend, if your answer is not, then I want to push on you to give an intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and informed reason on what evidence you have that he is not. You can get answers to this question. There are many ways to die. There are many ways to die, but there is only one way to live beyond the grave. His name is Jesus. And his words, he's speaking to a believer. He's speaking to Martha and Mary. So so this episode and reminder is not just to see our friends who don't follow Jesus become followers of Jesus. It's this episode time and time again. This is fuel of faith for the follower of Christ, for the believer. This is for you and me to be reminded that it's Jesus and him alone who is our resurrection and life. It's this Jesus who receives our lament and welcomes it in perplexity and pain. It is is the resurrection and life. He's the one who alone will call us forth from the grave. Our hope and consolation always and all the time is nothing other than no one other than Jesus himself. The Gospel of John is about faith, not just for salvation, but to keep believing for your faith to grow. A day is coming in which Jesus will say over each of us, a day is coming over which Jesus will say us over us, unbind him and let him go. Do you believe this? Amen? Lord, we believe and help our unbelief. Lord, we thank you that as believers, that no matter what pains and perplexities befall us, Jesus You watch over sparrows. You count the hairs on our head. You receive our lament. And you remain sovereign and loving over all things. Jesus, we ask for you to save in this place and to grant repentance to those who you're calling to yourself. And those of us who do believe, would you strengthen our faith? We pray by your spirit in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, it's a